Okay, so this is the last time you'll see this particular slide that I've been using over the last couple of months, uh, where we have gone to, un uh, to an understanding of where we kind of sit in our current day and age. Uh, we talked about the pre-modern era, the modern era, and tonight uh, I'm talking a little bit about uh, the ecological crisis, which has a connection to an economic crisis as well. But uh, we're going to use this as our last study in this topic next Wednesday. Uh, we will not have study, and then we'll pick up a new topic two weeks from tonight in the book of Exodus. So tonight, um, what we want to do is talk a little bit about uh, the three-pronged crises that has occurred within our own lifetime the equality crisis, racism, white nationalism, the ecology crisis, and the idea of um, climate change and other things that are connected to it. And of course, the economic crisis that uh, people who are still living in different parts of the world are living um, on just a, a bare a bare uh, minimum of salary and and finding to uh, hard to make ends meet. So I won't touch upon that all that much tonight. Uh, but I do want to talk a little bit about the ecological crisis. And what's fascinating to me has been since the rise of a lot of the history we've talked about in in particular within evangelicalism, there has been a a denial of a lot of the findings and data of science. And I asked the question in my mind, why is there such a uneasiness between religion and uh, the findings of science? And what I, what I found is that it seems as though that the farther right are in their religious beliefs, the more they are anti-environmental uh, in their sensitivities, which is quite interesting to me. Um, there are sometimes coalitions that are pushing back on that. Uh, it's interesting to me that some of these interest groups come from the roots of what we've already talked about in prior weeks. So you'll see point number three there, a coalition of major evangelical groups, including Focus on the Family and the Family Research Council launched a movement that it's called the Cornwall Alliance. I had never heard of that before, but uh, it is a, a group of uh, Christians that not only do they push back against environmentalism, but they began to uh, say that it's a false worldview. And um, again, there's a lot of conspiracy that's attached to that, that environmentalism is kind of uh, striving to put America uh, under its control. And so they released some literature and some promotional material, including a video series called Resisting the Green Dragon. Has anybody ever heard of that before? Um, it's a it's a uh, educational series, and the green dragon is environmentalism. And here's a couple of quotes from uh, their material today. Today's environmentalism isn't a neutral set of ideas that can be tacked onto the Christian faith without theological compromise. That's interesting to me. 
to think that uh, to take care of the planet is to compromise uh, sound orthodoxy within theology. Here's another one. Some of what does under the name of creation care, um, I missed a word in the quote, some of what does under the name of creation care is the theology of secular and pagan religious environmentalism. So here's how they're viewing it, is that environmentalism is secular and pagan, which is interesting. So, um, so there's a lot of pushback against this, and I'm going to show you some trends here in a uh, few minutes of what countries are doing in their particular outlook upon where we stand ecologically in, in our current uh, situation. So an ecological crisis, again, becomes a, um, a pushback of, of viewpoints, and usually it's connected to some politics as well. But here you can see uh, is the idea of where science and religion can't be reconciled. So I think this is important to see. An automatic resistance to science would seem to make sense for some religious believers. Why is that? There are several ways that core aspects of modern scientific knowledge tend to undermine, and here's the key, and this goes back to what we've laid uh, in previous weeks, it undermines a literalist and fundamentalist reading of the religious text. In other words, um, if you take a literal reading of Genesis yeah. 1 and 2 and say this is the way creation came about, then what you're going to find is that when science sees the evolution of the species, there is an automatic fear factor that begins to come in saying, well, that then proves that the Bible is wrong if evolution and Darwinism is correct. Rather than understanding that religious texts aren't always literal, uh, and there's clues to that sometimes, uh, one of the things that should pop up is the idea of a talking serpent. Um, it might be something that is alluding to um, the, the struggle that's going on early in the history of mankind, rather than literally taking it as a talking serpent that tempts Eve and then Adam. But either way, no matter which way you take it, that the more literalistic you become in reading the text, the more resistant you become to um, the sciences, and in particular to uh, environmentalism to take care of the planet. A second point here, religion offers the comforts of a measure of control and reassurance via this omnipotent deity, God, that is then placated by the rituals of religion. And I'm not just talking Christianity here. I'm also talking to obviously world religions as well. In contrast, science naturalistic universe offers neither an intrinsic moral order nor a final reward such as heaven and eternal life, which it then becomes kind of unsettling for uh, people of faith. Now, I don't think there needs to be that feeling though. I mean, I, I take it that you can see a naturalistic evolution and development of the cosmos and still understand that the religion that we hold to offers uh, an insight into um, 
how we are to take the text or not take the text and also add to our understanding of how the species develop and how they even overcome some of uh, the things like extinction uh, over the course of time. Um, some of these mismatches though, sometimes uh, will then make Christians and even other religious people suspicious of scientific findings. Now that is not to say all the finds, findings of science are correct 100% of the time. Even science adjusts in its theories over time and they have to understand that they understand a particular way of looking at something for a while and then new data comes along. And when that new data comes along, what you have then is an adjusting of the hypothesis and the theories uh, that they once had. So. Um, that is true, of whether in science or in religion, we're always adjusting our worldview depending upon what uh, new information we uh, obtain. So I don't see why that needs to be uh, that troublesome, but it is for a lot of people because, uh, because a lot of times their faith is built upon fear rather than faith. And, and what I mean by that is, uh, faith accepts mystery. Uh, it doesn't try to rule out mystery. Okay. All right. Let me see if you have some thoughts there. I, any questions or comments on, on that? We're going to look at a passage here in a second. Yeah. Right. So Mark says, doesn't the Bible teach us to take care of the land and take care of this, the animal world? And the answer to that is yes. And I'm, I'm going to sh show you a couple of passages in a moment on that. Any other thoughts so far? Yeah. Yeah, right. That's true. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Anything, God is able to do anything. You're, you're right. No doubt. So as he was just saying that the, the text that we look to, whether you take it literalistically or not, it offers uh, some of the same lessons. And those lessons come through the story, the narrative, and the, uh, the points of view that are represented. Uh, so that allows different people to have different perspectives on religious texts that, and you don't necessarily have to have the same viewpoint on it with Without understand, without coming to a disagreement on the meaning of the text, because the text can come through whether you think that there's a talking serpent or not. So, yeah. All right. I remember the days when the seven literal days were being challenged with God didn't know the seven. You know, God doesn't have a time frame, so seven days could have, you know, one day could have been 
a million years. And uh-huh. we were in a, a GARB church at that point in time. And it wasn't as much of a controversy as you would have thought. Hmm. There, was, there were a couple people that were very strict and it was seven literal days. Mm-hmm. But most of them, including the pastors, were, oh, no, you know, it could have been you know, a day is to God is different than a day to us mm-hmm. because he has no time, which, you know, so that part wasn't such a big controversy. Probably, with probably <laughs> what happened um, in your experience is a lot of religious scholars uh, and pastors as well began to realize that holding to a strict seven literal day creation created problems that was in contradiction to the uh, findings of science, the dating of different things. And so rather than going to a theistic evolution position that God used evolution to bring about humanity, kind of the middle compromise was, well, it's not a literal 24-hour day, that a day could represent an era of time, uh, perhaps long periods of time. So again, I I, I think we see kind of a movement there as well uh, in the course of uh, theological uh, wrestling with the text and what it means. And, um, and I think we have seen, you know, a, a, a position move from a strict literalistic 24-hour day to, to possibly meaning something else. And, you know, and I think we, we don't know exactly what to make of the text totally. But what we do know is that and what we're going to see here in a second is it's presented as something that comes from the power of God. And it's a very good um, creation that God brought about for the sake of mankind. And I think when you begin to look at that, the idea that it's very good uh, represents kind of the key to understanding our relationship to uh, the ecological crisis that um, that we're currently struggling with uh, politically. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I, I, that's good. I mean, you you were listening to some people who at least were wrestling with the topic rather than people that, you know, were dogmatic on saying, no, right there, it's seven days. It has to be seven 24-hour days. So. Yeah, the surprising part of it was that, one of the pastors was the father of our contemporary, one of our contemporaries. So he was older at the time. Oh, uh-huh. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we'll continue to move along here. So a lot of the idea of climate denial has its roots not in science, but in politics. Um, it's interesting when you think about um, 
where a person is on the political spectrum, they are sometimes um, rejecting of the idea of climate change simply because it's inconvenient. It, it's easier to make money using the, all the resources of the planet. And so the bottom line behind it is, is not so much the truth or untruth of climate change, it's the inconvenience of climate change that puts a hampering on, um, on making profit. So where this kind of intersects with politics, in my opinion, is that our dependence upon fossil fuels that then produces global warming is, um, is all business driven. So the idea of we need to keep uh, creating uh, more dependence upon fossil fuels because there's a lot of money to be made in that rather than going to a more green uh, way of living um, and uh, producing more environmental friendly uh, vehicles and, and different things like that. So when you're talking about this, you have to keep in the back of your mind that this isn't just a religious topic. It, it delves into politics. And as we know, a lot of the wars throughout uh, the years has been over uh, resources and who's gonna control those resources and then ultimately who can make the most money from those resources. Now, what's fascinating is the farther the right you go politically and religiously, um, that becomes more and more anti-science because anti-science becomes an inconvenience when you wanna go ahead and pollute the planet or if you wanna go ahead and use up the resources of the planet and the resources of the planet can't um, keep up with the demand that it is being used. So um, all of these topics kind of intersect into a cultural identity. And we've been talking a lot about that in previous weeks. And this cultural identity, especially in America, is this idea we're free to do what we want. I'm free to drive as big of a car as I want as, uh, and use as much gas or natural resources as I want because to limit that is to hamper my freedom. But what we find is that it then kind of goes into other areas as well. The farther the right goes in, in saying, you can't uh, hamper my freedom, will then come sometimes become actually detrimental in other areas as well. And I just put one example here, the example of social distancing and wearing masks during the pandemic. You know, um, it wasn't all that long ago that there was that big traffic tie up in Detroit when they were protesting the wearing of masks and all that and the big truck convoy and that type of thing. Well, most of them are far right politically and as a result of that, it, it, it's, no, don't ask me to, um, to limit my, my freedoms in any way, even though it might be better for um, the common good, right? So it's, it's just an interesting dynamic that is taking place. 
What's interesting here is when you look at the data from different countries, um, we're at actually at the bottom of how um, we view this idea of um, a danger ecologically. So let me show you a chart here. So in 2018, there was a Pew Research study and this was just one particular, this wasn't all the ecological issues. It was just climate change that they were talking about in this article. So if you look, and these, obviously, there's a lot more countries, but I just selectively uh, pulled out a, a, a random sampling here. So if you look, the country of Greece, 90% of their population believe that climate change is a real threat. 6% thought of it as a minor threat and 4% it isn't a threat at all. South Korea, 86, nine and three, France, 83, 14 and three, Spain, 81%, 13% and 5%, Mexico, 80, 11 and six. Now you see it's starting to go down in, in some of these areas here, uh, Japan, um, it goes down to 75%, which is still pretty high compared to some of these countries down here. But notice here, these companies are more industrial in its uh, makeup. And so as a result of that, they need to be able to um, produce and not be hampered by ecological laws uh, that is protecting the environment. So Japan goes down to 75, Brazil 72, and Germany 71, and the Netherlands 70. But I want you to notice the United States here. This is interesting. A major threat, only 59% in comparison to 90% up in Greece. 23% um, see it as a uh, minor threat. So you're over uh, seventy percent of the entire population that says, you know, um, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Um, you know, not a threat at all. Sixteen percent, which is kind of high compared to these other countries here, um, but not as high as Russia. Take a look at Russia. This is a fascinating uh, percentage. So uh, Russia's uh, uh, only forty-three percent of the population thinks it's a problem. Uh, a big problem, 33%, and then 18%, which is the highest on this chart anyways, that it's not a threat at all. And look at look at Israel. This is interesting. Only 38% of the population think of it as a major threat, 40% uh, a minor threat, and 18% not a threat at all. So you see these numbers going down in these productive uh, countries, um, and it makes sense. Um, you know, they they don't want limitations either on regulation by regulations or putting a cap on their earning potential. A lot of times, so um, I just found that interesting that all of these developed nations that are high producing uh, don't want to believe that climate change is a real threat. Does that make sense to everybody? Any thoughts there? Oh, yeah. Well, Esty just said um, the the Russia, uh, you know, the Russia Russia is so far north, and it's so much colder that 
they have a, have trouble believing in global warming. That's, I, th I think that's thinking of, of climate uh, change um, only in terms of the thermometer, you know, rather than observing the nature of the earth and what is changing. Oh yeah, that's good. SD also said they don't get as much information because it's mm -hmm. more, more controlled in terms of information. Yeah, right. When you have controlled information, then, you know, you don't have as broad of a base to, to think through. Yeah. I have another um, insight that I'm not sure if it's only for the U.S. or if it would go for evangelicals throughout the world. You might know more than, than I do on it. But people like my sister out in California, they um, think, why should we bother? Mm. Because Christ is coming again right away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a lot of that is built upon, again, taking a text. Um, Peter mentions about uh, the idea of the earth being consumed and stuff. Okay. Again, that's taking a very literalistic viewpoint that, well, this earth doesn't matter. God's going to throw it away and he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Mm -hmm. Therefore, why take care of the earth that we're on? Okay, so I would think, Shelley, this is just my guess. I would think that that's probably pretty, it's pretty predominant within uh, Protestant evangelicalism for, to the far right, probably more than other, uh, uh, other expressions of Christianity. So um, it seems as though, again, it kind of ties back to a lot of the theological training that um, people have received through churches or books and that type of thing. Uh, and I, I remember one time, and this guy still pastors in the area, I remember him saying, this was years ago, I mean, 20 years ago, probably. He said he was promoting um, this idea, uh, the idea of being, uh, being ecologically responsible. And that was his sermon series. And he kind of, because um, he, he told me this on one occasion, he said, oh, that was just to get them into the door. And then I would, then I'm going to tell them it's going to burn up anyways. So, it, you know, it was kind of a bait and switch is what it was, but mm -hmm. um, it, it reflects that mindset that you were just talking about. It, it's that, Hey, let's do what we want with the planet. You know, God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth anyway. You know, uh, that's very dominant in some circles. You're right. So but I don't, I can't speak to the rest of the world. I, I don't know if other Christians on the planet would kind of look at it the same way. That seems to be a 
a pretty unique um, white uh, Christianity in the United States, that, uh, as, I, I, as I see it. Um, and I think, too, that probably relates to climate change as well. When you can, oh, yeah. you know, when, when you can order anything you want on Amazon and have it delivered the next day, or you can order uh, food or whatever you want and have it shipped in, that type of thing. But you don't see the actual ground in other parts of the world where climate change is actually hindering their crop uh, production and that type of thing. So it seems to me that we kind of fly blind in the sense uh, because we're Americans and we have more resources uh, and uh, eco economically we have more resources that we can kind of ignore what other people experience, I think, firsthand. So, okay. All right, we'll keep going. So there's kind of a chicken and egg problem here. Do religious communities adopt politically conservative positions on climate change because of their religious tradition? Or do people adopt the religious tradition that stresses human uh, domination and dominion over nature because they were aided in a politically conservative community. It seems as though both are kind of working hand in hand that they kind of reinforce each other a little bit. Now, is the creation in crisis? Uh, here is uh, Brian McLaren in, in his book, Everything Must Change. He defines an ecological crisis occurring when changes to the environment of a species or population destabilizes and uh, it threatens its continued survival. So the way he, he describes it is a prosperity crisis that our way of producing prosperity is unsustainable ecologically, that we're gonna use up our resources. Um, Second is a poverty crisis. The gap between the rich and the poor is growing, leaving more and more people in a less and less equitable situation. The third is a security crisis. The widening gap between a rich minority and a poor majority plunges the planet into vicious cycles of violence. Um, people who can't get enough then react and, and revolt and, and, and and there's war over who's going to control resources, that type of thing. And then he talks about a spirituality crisis that the religious communities of the world are failing to address these first three uh, crises, prosperity, poverty, and security. So I thought that was an interesting way of him kind of summarizing. Uh, that's, a, that's a very good book. Everything Must Change. It's been out several years now. It's not one of his newer books, but it talks about interlocking circles uh, that uh, have an effect upon one another. Here's another uh, way of looking at it. So uh, how do we uh, go from a consumptive to a sustainable way of life? And that really is a sub-question of how shall we live in relationship to the planet? So I ran across this uh, six eco-justice principles to consider. Number one, the principle of intrinsic worth, that the universe, the earth, and all its components have worth and value. 
Two is the principle of interconnectedness, that the earth is a community of interconnected living things, and we are mutually dependent on one another for survival. Third is the principle of voice. Earth is a subject capable of raising its voice in celebration and against injustice. Number four, the principle of purpose. The universe, earth, and all its components are part of a dynamic cosmic design within which each piece has its place in the overall design. Number five is the principle of mutual custodianship. The earth is a balanced and diverse domain where responsible custodians can function as partners with rather than rulers over. The earth is to sustain its balance and a diverse earth community. And finally, number six, the principle of resistance. Earth and its components not only suffer from human injustices, but actively resist them in the struggle for justice. So I thought those were that's another interesting way of framing uh, the topic. The topic, though, really does have its scriptural basis. So Mark, you mentioned just a few moments ago, doesn't the Bible tell us to take care of the planet? So let me just mention a, a few things. And then we're going we're gonna to look at a couple of passages. But we've been talking a little bit about Genesis. Uh, we did a study not too long ago, uh, where I introduced the Hebrew word tov to you. And uh, that occurs throughout Genesis chapter one, it is good, it's good. Uh, and then in Genesis chapter one, verse 28, this is where the interpretive challenge comes in, uh, in the different theological traditions. So listen to chapter one of Genesis, verse 28. When uh, the first uh, chapter gives to us a creation account, we're told in verse 27, God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Now, the idea of dominion is that domination. In other words, the only reason that it exists is for you to dominate it and to use it. Or does dominion mean something else? In other words, does it have built into it the idea of responsible care for the planet? Okay. Now that's the way I lean on that. In other words, the idea behind this, I think, is as a park ranger is commissioned to take care of, let's say a national park, they're looking at what's going to keep that park thriving, okay? It seems to me that the text is trying to get at taking care of something precious. So if we, we take all of these uh, statements and it was good and it was good and it was good to mean God loves what he made, okay? Then I think what we find is there is this um, connection to, and you get to take care of it. So maybe a way of illustrating this is uh, your son or daughter, uh, they get their driver's license and you hand over the keys to them to use the car, or maybe you give them the car. Um, do they, 
by handing over the keys to the car does not mean go do what you want with this, wreck it as much as you want, you know, that type of thing. It's this idea here, I'm giving you a gift. This is a gift that you can use, but take good care of it, you know, fill it with gas, change the oil, drive responsibly, you know, that type of thing. So um, I think that's kind of a way, this, this is how I look at the text here. I think that's the way to, to, to look at at Genesis chapter one, at the end of the creation week, God says, okay, I made this place for you. You can thrive in this place. You can enjoy the pleasures of this place, but take care of it. Take care of it. Uh, watch over it, that type of thing. Is that the way everybody else kind of looks at this passage or do you have a different take on it? But again, depends upon where people go to church a lot of times this can be a text that can be used and twisted to say, hey, God's going to make things new anyways, so let's just go ahead and use an abuse, that type of thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, right. Yeah. So what Esty said, I, I know it's hard for you to hear off this uh, laptop uh, uh, microphone. She said, it was interesting how we, when we came into the country, looked at Native Americans as pagan because they had a, such a deep connection to the earth and uh, they respected it, and they saw the creator in the creation, that type of thing. And um, and it was viewed upon the, the savages, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. And we could have learned a lot. Yeah, we could have learned quite a bit, exactly. Any thoughts on Genesis 1 there? Welcome. So um, let's take a look at chapter two, verse 15 for a second. So in the second creation account in Genesis, verse 15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord uh, God commanded the man, you may eat freely of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day you eat of it, you shall die. Now we take that to be first and foremost, a theological statement where sin is introduced into the creation and we are gonna physically die as a punishment for our sin. However, let's look at that just for a second through an ecological lens. So he is given the garden to till it and to keep it. Okay, so that's interesting. It's not just use it. You've got to make it uh, able to reproduce. You, you have to be able to continue uh, to make it viable. There are certain limits. You may eat freely of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. So let's step back and look at this ecologically for a second. 
maybe there's some things that we can do within the creation, but in the end, it's detrimental to us to do it. You know, uh, here in this case, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil could be um, misusing the planet. And then as a result of that, uh, you're not going to have anything to eat. Now, they would not understand this as much as we do, you know, as we think of the diminishing resources that we have on the planet because we're overusing and consuming it. Maybe it's there that when we look through the ecological lens, our knowledge is too big for us. You know, it it produces effects that uh, ultimately will will turn back on us. Does that make sense? All right. Then, of course, Genesis 3, God sets limits for humans and how they are to exist within the garden. And when humans refuse to recognize those limits, sometimes the results can be catastrophic, not only spiritually. Um, some of the curses that are mentioned in Genesis chapter 3 are things that pertain to our physical existence. Of course, uh, the pain in childbearing is mentioned. Uh, but also, it's interesting that uh, it mentions the ecological element. So chapter 3, look at verse uh, 18. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread until you to return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Interesting that there's a connection to the ground. You're going to work. It's going to be hard work. Uh, you're going to have thorns and thistles and the troubles that come along with um, the, the consequence of the fall. So any thoughts there? Okay, go over to uh, Psalm 19 for a second. In Psalm 19, I referenced this uh, on Sunday morning in the message, Our Sacred Earth. I just wanted to point it out again. In Psalm 19, there's, a, um, there's an interesting way the psalmist talks about the glory of creation. It says here in verse one, the heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Now, verse two is interesting. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night declares knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. How does creation speak to us? Well, it shows the glory of God, obviously. But just think about your tomato plants for a second. How does a tomato plant speak forth to you? Well, when it starts to dry up and wither because you haven't watered it, it's speaking forth to you, give me some water. <laughs> I, I need water to survive, you know, that type of thing. So it seems as though the personification of uh, the earth is that if we will pay attention, it's speaking forth to us things that we need to keep in mind if it's going to continue to thrive. Now, if you're to read this whole psalm, which I'm not, 
it then makes a connection to the Torah. So one way God speaks is through creation. And then later in the Psalm, like in verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. It's the idea that God speaks to us in two ways. Um, and um, the first way is through creation. The second way is through the law, the giving of the law. And it seems as though there's this connection that reinforces each other, that we learn through creation, but we learn then through God's word too, that, that you, you can't take one or the other, you take them both. And it speaks forth to us. And the way I put it here at the bottom of the slide is it's a symbiotic relationship that is creation and God's word are working hand in hand, okay? All right. One more uh, scripture reference. So in Psalm 97, um, this particular psalm begins to talk about the idea of justice as it's related to creation, and especially over the vulnerability that uh, occurs upon people um, as it's related to uh, the creation. And so it says in verse six here, um, the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples behold his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame and those who make their boast in worthless idols, all gods bow down before him. Uh, Zion hears and is glad and the towns of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O God. For you, O Lord, are high over all the earth and you are exalted above all gods. The Lord loves those who hate evil, and he guards the lives of his faithful, and he rescues them from the hands of the wicked. Light dawns for the righteous, and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. So there's this idea of responsibility, taking in uh, what is seen in creation. And I I jumped down to uh, verse 6, but in verse 2 it says, Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his adversaries on every side. So he uses the natural world. He talks about lightning. He talks about the mountains and that type of thing at the beginning as a way of demonstrating the glory of the Lord and how we are to take all of this in and recognize that uh, God's glory is seen in a variety of ways. So the connection to a healthy earth is related to whether humans will suffer uh, or thrive, depending upon how we treat the earth. Uh, in other words, when we fail to see the world as God's creation, we will end up sometimes abusing the earth where selfishness and greed can take over misuse the resources that we have. So here's a interesting thing here. Our actions can cause a loss, loss of biodiversity in the world. So biodiversity refers to the number of different plants, animals, bacteria, and fungi in the ecosystem. And because of our impact upon the environment, species tend to become extinct at a higher rate. Now, this is what's interesting. 
the natural rate, according to science, is usually there's one to five species that in the natural order of things are lost in the course of a given time. What they are seeing now is that it's a thousand times faster than what it was before the industrial revolution, that type of thing, that a lot more species are going extinct. So this leads to this, and I, I've never given much thought to this, but um, science has talked about mass extinctions. And I don't, at least I don't remember this when I was in school in science class, but a mass extinction is a period of time, geological time, in which high percentages of the biodiversity, different species, bacteria, fungi, plants, mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, fish, and interbrace begin to die out. The planet has experienced, according to them, five mass extinction events, the last one occurring uh, 65.5 million years ago, which wiped out the dinosaurs from existence. But they are saying, with what they're seeing now, they believe we're in the beginning stage of the sixth mass extinction. In other words, a lot of the species that are dying out and going extinct, and some of that is not just climate related, but the way, when you think about, um, Esty just mentioned Native Americans and how they respected the land. At the time of uh, the first peoples in our country, there was like millions of buffalo. And at one time, it, it, the number of buffalo went down to 1,000, almost went extinct. Now that Now it's going back up because it's being they're being protected. But um, so, you know, there's different ways this, I think, happens. And uh, this last point here, and unlike previous extinction events caused by natural phenomena, the sixth mass extinction is driven by human activity, primarily, though not limited to, the uns unsustainable use of land, water, and energy uh, that we're using more than the earth can produce. So, um, you know, and that let's think about that for a moment. Sure, we would like to deny that because all of us would love to just use the planet the way we want to use it, right? Uh, to think about the trouble of recycling or, you know, turning your thermostat down a few degrees, this and that. It's just an inconvenience. And again, the American mindset is, hey, I'm free to do what I want to do. So. I thought you might find this interesting. I'm just about done for tonight. And I have a lady coming in at eight o'clock that I'm gonna uh, be talking to. So I wanna stop on time. So one of my favorite uh, eagles is Joe Walsh. And he has an individual career. And he wrote this song, a song for a dying planet. I don't know if you've ever heard, that, heard it. It's only a couple minutes long, but listen to it.
Does anybody listen or care anymore? We are living on a dying planet We're killing everything that's alive And anyone who tries to deny it Wears a tie and gets paid to lie So I wrote these songs for a dying planet I'm sorry but I'm telling the truth And for everybody trying to save it These songs are for you Is there anyone out there? Kind of eerie to hear that clock ticking in the background, isn't it? Yeah, that. Um, so here's what I want to leave you with in the last uh, minute I have here. If you want to look this up, uh, the reason that different scientists have said that we're on the verge or in the middle of a sixth mass extinction uh, was put forth in the publication Business Insider on June 18, 2019. <clears throat> and uh, this, um, this author, Aylin Woodward, uh, wrote this. So just take a look at some of these things. Number one, Earth appears to be undergoing a process of biological annihilation. Up to half of the total number of animal individuals that once shared the Earth with humans are already gone. Number two, more than 26,500 of the world's species are threatened with extinction, and that number is expected to keep going up. According to the UN report, the number of species threatened with extinction could be closer to a million. In insects are dying off at a record rate. Roughly 40% of the world's insect species are in decline, according to one study. Number five, there, that's a major problem because insects like bees, hoverflies, and other pollinators perform a crucial role in fruit, vegetable, and nut production. Plus, bugs are a food source for many bird, fish, and mammal species, some of which rely on for food. Number six, instincts aren't the only creatures taking a hit. In the past 50 years, more than 500 amphibian species have declined worldwide, and 90 have gone extinct due to a deadly fungal disease that corrodes uh, frog flesh. Number seven, the loss of even one species could also cause an extinction domino effect to ripple through an ecosystem, causing the entire community to collapse. Number eight, a 2015 study examined bird, reptile, amphibian, and mammal species and concluded that the average rate of extinction over the last century is up 100 times higher than normal. Number nine, in roughly 50 years, 1,700 species of amphibians, birds, and mammals will place a higher risk of extinction because of their natural habitats shrinking. 
Number 10, koalas are already functionally extinct, meaning the population has declined so much that it no longer plays a significant role in Australia's ecosystem. Number 11, logging and deforestation of the Amazon rainforest is of particular concern when it comes to looming extinctions. Number 12, in the next 50 years, humans will drive so many animal species to extinction that the Earth's evolutionary diversity won't recover for some 3 million years, one study said. Number 13, some paleobiologists suggest that an even longer time frame for the planet's recovery from a mass extinction, 10 million years or more. Number 14, alien species are a major driver of extinction. Number 15, oceans observe 93% of the extra heat that greenhouse gases trap in the Earth's atmosphere. That kills marine species and coral reefs. Number 16, species that live in freshwater are impacted by warming too. Number 17, warming oceans lead to sea level rise. This is the real con concern of floods and that type of thing. Rising waters are already impacting vulnerable species habitats. Number 18, warming oceans are leading to unprecedented Arctic and Antarctic ice melt, which further contributes to sea, le rise, sea level rise. In the U.S., 17% of all threatened and endangered species are at risk because of rising seas. And finally, number 19, if nothing is done to address climate change, one in six species is on track to go extinct. So it's a lot more serious than simply um, it's getting a little bit warmer. It, 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 that's why you don't look at the thermometer, you look at the ecosystem. Uh, and finally, number 20, a new study found that 40% of the world's primates will be at risk of extinction due to extreme warm weather events associated with a warming planet. Um, Hugh Possum, uh, Possingham, chief scientist of the the Nature Conservatory told Business Insider that the disappearance of so many species will fundamentally affect the global economy and the health of every human being. So it is something to take seriously. It is something that I think we need to uh, obviously um, pay attention to and do our best to try to uh, help the planet not just survive, but to thrive as well. So. You know, there's a quick uh, comment. We talked about the you know, certain folks uh, feeling that this is the Earth will be renewed. You know, um, when Christ comes and all that, and that's why they don't really feel it's that critical. You know, the flip side of that is that I think you have many people who are very strong supporters of science who feel that science will solve it. In other words, that you know, yeah, let's we'll, we'll figure. We're messing things up at this point. We're maybe not responding as quickly as we could. But, you know, when push really comes to shove and times really get tough, our, our great science, our great scientists will, will find an answer. And I think that's, that's, that's perhaps even in some respects a larger issue than the other, I think, in terms of. And that's might, that might even be more dangerous. Than the other. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, because I, think, I mean, people are like me included are kind of natural procrastinator sometimes. You, you don't want to change, you don't want to change your lifestyle, you know, and you want to, you want to, you want to drive your gasoline powered vehicle. You don't want to hassle with an electric vehicle and plug it in every 300 miles. But um, on the other hand, I think, and some people will think, you know, again, when push comes to shove at the end of the day, 
science will have the answers. So let's not, let's not worry about as much today as we should because they'll solve it for us. And I think there's a lot of people who have that, that feeling, who have that sense, whether it's, um, you know, something that they are- And, and that might even, be true. That might be true that we'll be able to, um, to, you know, take care of it. But what if it's too late to do that? That, you know, it, it, it's, you know, that's, that's the thing I, sometimes you can try to correct things, but sometimes if you would have done it earlier, it, right. you know, you would have done a better job at it. Or preventative. I've done yeah. been more preventive. The, uh, and the other thing is, it's, it's, I think it's the most frustrating. On the news tonight, there was a story about California within like a very short period of time, mm -hmm. four years, not selling any more gasoline-powered vehicles, mm -hmm. which, which is going to have, sure, we'll have to, you know, will have a great impact. But the reality is it's a global issue. And, and so you, you, know, you can't put a tent over California and say, okay, we'll solve our problem in California. Don't worry about anybody, anybody else. Or, you know, even so, I mean, unless you can get all the countries, including Russia, including China, including some of these countries that have huge carbon footprints, among us likewise, I mean, it's, it, solving the problem in America, solving the problem in Ohio, solving the problem in California, it's going to be important in doing and getting things moving in, in the right direction, but it's a very tough nut to crack in terms of, you know, how do you deal with it? Since many of these issues are global issues. That's right. And uh, that, that's the most community. Well, and, and, it's, and it's very, as you mentioned, it's very interrelated with politics and the, and, and the economics impact. Yeah. All right. Uh, ecology of priority. If they can't put food on the table, that's they're going right. to find a way to feed their people, keep their homes, one way or the other, even if they're producing a large carbon footprint, because they have no other solution. So it's right. it's economic, it's political, it's everything. It's a very complicated mess in some respects. Yeah, in many sure. respects. Yeah. Well, I'm going to finish up. I have a an appointment coming in, so uh, we'll stop here. Just a reminder: next Wednesday we won't have Bible study, and then we'll pick up a new topic two weeks from tonight. Okay. Right. All right. All right. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks. Thanks for Talk being here. Appreciate it. Bye-bye.